With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Welcome to Mama Chat Radio. I am stepping in this morning for Donna. I am Megan Harvey, and with me is Cinematic. Good morning. Hi. How are you doing? Good, good. It's um, it's a big day today. I think um, President Obama is scheduled to give a big speech today, if I'm not mistaken, and um, he's going to be talking about budgetary matters. Um, oh, hey, before we before we sort of launch full fledged into our show, um, let's uh, let's just give our customary beginning of the show shout out to um, Bubble Genius, our great sponsors. Um, they have all kinds of really great um, vegan, not tested on animals, human-friendly, planet-friendly kinds of soaps and bubble baths and, um, you know, little things you can add to your bath to make it fizzy and kids' soaps and things like that. So um, I want to just kind of give a plug to them because they've been so supportive of our show and um, they are our chief sponsor at this point, and um, you know we just love them because they're pretty amazing. Um, Not so, only they have a great line of stuff. Yes, and so they're at BubbleGenius.com. So please go check them out, and uh, we'll repeat the Earl at the end of the show if, if you missed it this time around. But um, anyway, yeah. So current current events, uh, the big speech. Um, I know that there have been um, sort of trial balloons floated about what different versions of the speech might contain, both in mm-hmm. the LA Times and I think you know on on an East Coast paper. I don't know if it's the Post or the New York Times, but so everyone is is really anxious to know what direction President Obama is going to outline, given that last week we discussed quite a bit about the Ryan budget, uh, Congressman mm-hmm. Ryan of Wisconsin, and um, I I really kind of like the alliteration that the pro- the Congressional Progressive Caucus has come up with in describing Congressman Ryan's budget, which is Ryan's roadmap to ruin, <laughs> which kind of outlines it right there, because, you know, basically he's calling for, you know, taking an axe to uh, some of the most popular and longstanding, you know, social programs around that we've all kind of come to love and embrace and uh, consider, you know, just, um, you know, bedrock parts of our our society, like Social mm-hmm. Security, Medicaid, and Medicare. So uh, I think there's just a lot of people who are very perturbed by the idea of, um, you know, taking cuts to any of those programs because, as we all know, um, you know, Medicaid is is very often, um, you know, the final sort of safety net. Actually, a lot of these programs are sort of the final safety net for the disabled, for a lot of, mm-hmm. um, you know, women and children who are otherwise um, uninsurable in other, mm-hmm. you know, sort of private markets of insurance. Um, certainly Medicare, I mean, 
Um, thank goodness we have that. Otherwise, you know, prior to that, we had generations of seniors in dire poverty, you know. And, yeah. And who is going to insure someone who is uh, 60 and 70 and 80 years old with medical issues, right? I mean, that's that's just insane. That's just insanity. Exactly. So, yeah, so I think, you know, a large swath of people are starting to wake up that these kinds of things have been put on the table. And so I think what people are eager to see is what, to what extent, um, you know, President Obama is going to um, come out and, you know, draw a line somewhere and where will that line be. So that is scheduled for today. There's also just a tons of other stuff happening in the news. Um one thing I can think of that was kind of delightful, actually, like late um, April Fool's joke, sort of coinciding with um, tax day coming up, is a press release. I don't know if you saw that. We put it on our Facebook page. Um, it was issued by General that. Electric, of all people, <laughs> wink, wink, and they announced that the $3.2 billion tax rebate that they would, you know, the refund that they would be given by the U.S. government for being an enormous corporation that somehow manages to offshore many of its key <laughs> key products <laughs> and services overseas has nevertheless decided to give $3.2 billion of that tax refund directly back to the U.S. government and to help, you know, as a patriotic gesture, help make up the deficit. Now, wasn't that kind of incredible? (laughs) (laughs) Well, if it struck you as kind of incredible, it was because it was not credible. It was It's a great prank by the yes-men, and they're just these really – fun sort of cultural provocateurs that um, really enjoy messing with your mind, and they and they do it always <laughs> with a point, which is as we are all individuals getting ready to file our taxes dutifully as, you know, good citizens that we are, we really do have to kind of contrast and wonder about corporations that uh, cannot seem to muster either the same tax rate as individuals or... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, seem to have shelters everywhere across the globe that, you know, in effect leave them paying zero. (laughs) So something to think about. You know, uh, you you think about it too much and you might want to get your pitchfork out, but, um, you know, the yes men kind of get you thinking about, well, what if in a different world we had corporations that actually did pay their taxes? So... I I think later on today I might actually call GE and congratulate them for their good citizenship. And, um, <laughs> and encourage, we should have, start a campaign of thank you notes and get people to send in thank you notes for that. Yes, <laughs> and encourage people, yes, to send in thank you notes and also to say, hey, why don't you get your corporate friends, your little <laughs> corporate friends, to join you in your gesture. <laughs> Exactly. So, yeah, so I don't know if there was anything in the news that caught your eye that you wanted to talk about. Um, You know, a lot of things still percolating um, in terms of Wisconsin and sort of the union struggles that, you know, unions are having in terms of being able to hang on to collective bargaining. Um, You know, just all kinds of things are all around. I don't know what, if anything, caught your eye. Uh, You know, I, it's, there's just been, there's been a lot of stuff. I've 
I've been swept up with school issues with my kids the last few days, so that's kind of been taking away from my news reading time. (laughs) Yeah, I totally understand. And the thing is, here in California, we're plagued with this problem of not being able. We were denied the, the ability to vote. The voting public was, you know, denied an opportunity to vote to extend current taxes that we all pay. And uh, our legislature, which is two-thirds, just under two-thirds Democratic and sort of slightly over one-third Republican, all the Republicans banded together. Some of them formed what's called the Taxpayers Caucus, where they just, you know, it's very Orwellian, the name, because these are not people who Mm -hmm. believe in paying taxes. These are people who believe that there should be no taxes ever again. And so uh, they basically, you know, stonewalled, Governor Jerry Brown in his request, you know, to have the legislature refer the vote to the people, you know, ask the people, do they want to vote to extend existing taxes? And uh, so he got no cooperation. In fact, um, some of us who are a little less charitable, in our view, the GOP, you know, believe that they... It was a kind of game that they played that we've seen, you know, elsewhere where Lucy says, here's the football, Charlie Brown, you know, go ahead and kick it. And uh, before you know it, you know, it's snatched away. So there's some doubt as to whether these people actually had the actual intention of ever entertaining Uh the idea. No, I I don't mean to... I don't yeah. mean to cut you off, but I wanted to bring Carolee in because she is on oh. the line. Hi, Carolee. Good morning. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. Good hey, good morning. Thanks for joining us. So I was just quickly to summarize in terms of Jerry Brown. What I know is that there are activists and people who insist that we must resolve this before June 30th because those taxes expire June 30th. So if we don't take some sort of action, we're looking at anywhere from 300 to 700 possibly $800 Per, per per pupil spending cut in the state of California as a result of not having those taxes. So I think there are a lot of people who are looking at the legislature and thinking, why doesn't the legislature just vote on this to extend it? And we really only need two GOP state senators and two state assembly people who are GOP to cross over and you know make this happen. So I think a lot of folks in the grassroots are trying to figure out how to leverage you know, pressure on these key folks and make them, you know, make them um, vote on it and vote yes. So it's it's an uphill battle, but I think, you know, a lot of people are looking at per, per pupil spending, $800 is a significant amount. And what it adds up to be is, you know, that many fewer teachers in your schools. And so, therefore, what that translates into is larger class sizes. So, um, you know, we see a way that Americans for Prosperity has meddled in California politics, basically. Right. Well, that and the recall process in this state, which, you know, basically if any of those Republicans cross over and actually vote for it, they'll they'll start a recall effort against them. So it's a weird kind of... um, deal that we'll have to strike with any of them because we'll basically have to say we'll get your back if you're recalled. <laughs> I think that or just we should maybe we should threaten to recall them also and say, you know what, no one's gonna get your back. <laughs> yeah. That that may be that that may be the answer. You know, mm-hmm. I, I I know that um you know, I do tax prep as uh, like a sideline and 
You know, California refunds this year have been insane. They've been way higher than they should be. I'll be honest. I mean, I think that that um, you know we're we're making a mistake by constantly allowing the narrative to be about tax cuts. And this is not just on a state level. This is on a national level. Yeah. And if there's one thing I want to get across today to anybody who's listening out there, Social Security is not bankrupt. It is not going bankrupt. It is not in danger of being bankrupt. So you know what? That That's just why that, that they managed to spread because they had 60 bazillion different ways to spread that crap. Mm-hmm. But it's not going bankrupt. So yes. there, I had to Take it <laughs> off the table. Don't mm-hmm. even put it on the table, not to mention exactly. the other programs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I do at some point, Carolee, want to talk about um, the piece that you did on right-wing money spent to influence <sighs> education reform. I don't know. Before I, we, I know we have Todd on the line, but maybe quickly before we introduce him, you can just kind of gloss that for us. Uh, okay, well, it's I've, I've spent the last two weeks going through the most recent disclosures from right-wing nonprofit foundations. These are not the think tanks. Like, I'm not talking about the Heritage or the Cato's or any of those. That's a whole other universe. This is the family foundations, like the Walton family. Those are the Walmart people, and the and, and others who essentially put a ton of money into um, breaking the school system. And the way they they do it is they fund charter schools, they fund um, online efforts. I mean, to them, this is an investment. And um, it's an investment in, A, breaking unions, and, B, controlling public education, quote-unquote public education, um, curriculum, and um, dumbing it down basically, in my opinion. I mean, it's all part of the no child left behind. This is the real legacy that George Bush left behind was not tax cuts. It was this idea of blending the faith-based um, initiative into the schools in an effort to actually break the public school system, and he may have succeeded. I don't know. I mean, there's $89 million went in to fund these things in one year. One year, and that was only the top ten. Yeah. Who knows yeah. how much else? Right, and and we know that there's been a little bit of testing as a part of the concessions for you know c- the continuing resolution budget. Um, Obama agreed to Boehner's uh, proposal that you know vouchers be introduced into the D.C. public school system, and we also have the Supreme Court um, ruling. I believe it was in Arizona, which allows for um, vouchers to be used for religious schools. Just you know, it's obviously much more detailed and complex than that, but I mean that's sort of the gist of it. So we see them trying to crack open, you know, the um, the um, public school quote unquote market for religious instruction for taxpayer funded religious instruction. Which you know, if you have any notion of the First Amendment and the separation of church and state, ought to really make your skin crawl. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I did want to say to our guest today, who is Todd Farley, he is a New York City writer, New York City-based writer, who for 15 years worked for um, some very well-known companies uh, who create and um, administer standardized tests. Uh, and during that time, he wrote and scored tests in math, reading, science, social studies, history, writing, health, and the arts. And um, he, his, I believe he no longer does that anymore, but he um, 
has a wealth of experience from the inside, seeing how these kinds of standardized test sausages are made. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, these are the standardized tests that, you know, children are are, are being subjected to um, as a result of No Child Left Behind with the emphasis on standardized testing as a key metric of, you know, student achievement and now teacher job security. So with that, let's um, let's say hi to our guest, Todd. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Hi. Welcome. Um, we have uh, three Momocrats on today, two others besides me, so... Um, we haven't we ha- confession up front we haven't had a chance to read your book but i'm very much looking forward to doing that because um in addition to getting out really great information um from your experiences in the in the standardized testing industry it's also very funny i hear so um do you <laughs> that want was to my hope us? yes yeah in a, in a sort of uh david sedaris does santa land diaries you know, Santa Elf way. <laughs> so um, if you could tell us how it is that you came to even work in this industry. Sure. Um, I think I came into it the same way a lot of people came into it, and that is um, I was living in Iowa City. I was trying to get into the writer's program. I was having a sort of a happy, slackery life in my 20s, um, and I was making $5.75 an hour working at the business office at the University of Iowa. And then I heard I could make $7.75 an hour to work in the standardized testing business industry. And I said, well, that sounds great. You know, nearly 40% more than I was making. Let's do that. (laughs) So I went up the street, you know, flashed my college diploma at uh, an HR rep and was working the next day. Are you able to name the companies that you worked for? Oh, I can name names, certainly. Oh, please do that. I think most people most people know that um, Iowa City has a it, it's the I think it's the home base for Pearson Educational Measurement. When mm-hmm. I started working there, they were called they were known as NCS. Then they became NCS Pearson, and then Pearson Education, and then Pearson Educational Measurement. Um, in my book, I note I think they're they're a little bit like a fleeing bank robber with a- aliases. Mm. You know, change your name as, as often as you can. Um, but it was it was NCS. NCS at the time, and that was the company I went to work for, um, scoring open-ended student responses on standardized tests. So as opposed to a multiple-choice question, it's those questions where, you know, the students are asked a question and given three or four lines to write their answer. So obviously a human has to read and score those answers, and that's what I and many other underemployed, happy-go-lucky slackers did. (laughs) Now, um... There's, I think there's been a push to move away from pure bubble in your answer and add, you know, these essay portions, um, definitely to the SAT and, and to right. a lot of other standardized tests as well. And so can you talk about, you know, what is really being assessed when that's done? Right. And that's what's actually interesting. When I, when I, I wrote my book, my book is based mainly about my experiences in the in the test scoring industry. So that is the time that I scored tests and I supervised others and I trained others and I became a scoring director and sort of climbed up the ranks pretty high, um, including I regularly um, worked on the, the, the NAEP tests called the National Assessment of Educational Progress. It's considered the gold standard of testing. Mm-hmm. I, I scored that pretty much every year, and that's with, uh, with ETS and with um, – 
I can't remember. There's a couple of governor, government organizations who, who do that. But the point is, like, so my experience in test scoring is with pretty much all the big states and all the big tests. Um, but my book was based just on test scoring, or, you know, open-ended test scoring. And one of the reasons I think it was sort of ignored is that people think, well, that's not a very big part of the industry. You know, there aren't there aren't that many open-ended items on every on every test. But the fact is, to me, this the whole the way the industry works uh, raises a lot of questions. It seemed to, seemed to me to be lots of variables about the scores that kids kids get, other than just how well they answered. You know, it seems to me it matters what testing center it gets sent to across the country, what temporary employee scores it, what time of day it gets scored, a million different things. But what's become even more relevant about my book is um, nowadays, like we heard last week or so, that the president sort of you know, derided bubble testing, multiple choice testing. Mm-hmm. And the, th- the thought is that we're going to move towards what they keep called critical thinking skills. So all these new tests supposedly are going to address critical thinking skills, which means they're going to be more performance-based, there's going to be more essays on them, and more open-ended questions. So all the things that my book brings up as being troubling about the industry seemingly are going to become more important, because who is going to assess, you know, who is going to read and score all those student tests other than the really happy for-profit testing industry? Yeah, um I at K12 News Network, um you know, I've been trying to highlight for people um some of the the players uh, in what I call big ed. I mean, there's we know there's big pharma, <laughs> we know there's right. big ag, and I really think, you know, it's coming to light that there's big ed and um as you say, the standardized testing companies are huge multinational players. I think Pearson is a uh, UK-based company, isn't it, or was it is absolutely? Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> so you know, and and we even see that in terms of some. Um, I, I know there's a, at least one UK corporation which is now getting involved in the operation of charter school management here in the US. I can't think of the company name right off the bat, but um, you know, there's big money to be made, and you know, states are. It's baked into you know school funding budgets that there will be updates of school textbooks and, you know, those kinds of curriculum materials. So obviously there's a huge amount of money to be made there, and I think we're starting to see more clearly the outlines of who can stand to profit. Right. I think I think I read recently that public education in America is a six hundred billion dollar industry. And apparently someone has had a look at that and said, Wow, we need to get our hands on some of that money. Um and I know, for instance, with all these all the all the budget issues we see around the country and the issue seems to be, you know, the teachers are the problem. We're we're over overpaying teachers. And meanwhile, um Pearson Education had made one point seven billion dollars in profit last year and we're clearly moving towards giving them more and more business. Um, and so I can't, I don't, I'm not an economist by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't know how giving them billions and firing teachers is going to benefit any student in the United States. Now, what what was your assessment of the people who are assessing? Can you tell us about, I mean, you, you seem like a really um, well-educated um, person, um, someone who you know values education and certainly can put a sentence together, so on and so forth. Um, you know, graduate of a writing program. So, uh, it, what can you kind of outline for us generally? Who became the people who 
graded these essays and, and maybe outline for us like what some of the criteria were because it seems to me essays are very subjective or can be very subjective in terms of what makes for a strong one versus a weaker one. Right. Um, whenever whenever people talk about assessing writing, I think of that one thing. It, um, when Lolita came out last century, it was considered pornography. And then at the end of the century, it was considered the fourth best book of the century. <laughs> you know, so there's a little subjectivity there. Um, mm-hmm. But the, and the reality is, I mean, you're, you're right. If, if, if you're reading an essay, clearly the kind of day you're having affects it, but also the, the subject matter affects you. If it's about something you enjoy, you know, then you're more likely to, to grade it higher. And if it's about something you disagree with politically, you're probably going to you know, hold, hold, hold uh, that against the student. And so that's what I'm saying. There's so many variables that go into this. Um, but I will say um, one, of the, one of the things people said about my book or that I heard about my book was that I was sort of unkind about the people who were scoring tests, and I didn't intend to be because I have to tell you, um, I, I, I always found it a really enjoyable experience to be in these scoring centers and interacting with all these sort of characters. Um, you know, Iowa City, where I spent a lot of my time doing this, is a, re- a, a very literate, literary town. People love writing. Um, and so there were often people that were in the writer's workshop who were scoring tests. Um, there were people who had published books. Um, there was an Olympic athlete. There was a guy scoring scoring essays. Um, in, this was in 96, who, who two weeks later ran the 400 meters in the Olympics in Atlanta. Wow. Right. I mean, I mean, he's, but he's, he needed to make a couple of dollars for a couple of weeks, so he, he, he signed on. <laughs> But there are people that are in medical school, in, in law school. Um, there's a lot of interesting characters. On the other hand, there's about half the people who I wouldn't, I say this, who I wouldn't trust to cat sit for me. And I mean that, I mean that literally. People who can't, can't get jobs other places. But the reality is, if NCS needed um, 100,000 essays to be scored in two weeks, they take anyone they can to get the job done. Mm. We pretend that there, you know, I mean, that there's a baseline to be hired, and there is. You have to have a college degree, um, and it's, you know, you have to have a four-year college degree. And ideally, they they would first hire all the people to score essays who are, you know, in the writers' workshop, and then English majors. But as you get less and less, then it's science majors and math majors, and you know, landscapers and you know, construction <laughs> dudes, and anybody. I mean, in, the reality is anybody because. They have contracts to get essays scored, to get tests scored, and that's what they do. Um, so it's it's a total melange of you know of characters. Some uh, do a great job, some do a terrible job, and that's the case in every scoring center I was ever in. But a good number of those people, if you knew they were scoring your kids' tests, you would uh, you would be suing people left and right. <laughs> you would blanch. <laughs> you would blanch, absolutely. <laughs> Well, I wonder if um, if you might, um, since you know our readers are coming fresh to your book, also if you might choose like a passage, a very short passage, and just sort of read it aloud for us, so we get a sense of the voice and you know a little, maybe a little of the setting and some of those characters that you might be talking about. Sure, I um I have a short piece here, um, and it's actually about temporary scores. So here we go. The brilliance of the idea of hiring unemployed people off the street to work as temporary test scores was best summed up by a guy I worked with in Phoenix. Keith looked like a cartoon strongman with wide shoulders, a huge barrel chest, and a head shaved clean. He'd just been hired on to score tests for the first time, but Keith said his real job was actually as an ultimate fighter, those lunatic guys who climb into an octagonal ring and engage in bare-knuckled combat. 
Keith was a nice man, but his mind, his mind worked about as quickly as you'd expect from a guy who got punched in the head a lot. He talked slowly and thought slowly, and at lunch every day he would sit at his desk, gazing off into space for half an hour as he ate a can of tuna fish, apparently not getting bored in the slightest while staring at the wall in front of him for the duration of his break. Keith turned out to be one of the many temporary employees I wouldn't have wanted trying to figure out what my aunt... Excuse me, I wouldn't... I wouldn't have wanted trying to figure out what my answers on a standardized test might have meant. I'm pretty sure whatever point I was trying to make, Keith wouldn't have got it. On the final day of the project, however, Keith did end up offering insight that I found quite deep. What is it you've been testing me for anyway, he asked. Excuse me, I said. These tests you're giving me, are they psychological, Keith said. Are you trying to figure out if I'm sane? I, I looked at Keith and saw he wasn't kidding. While for three weeks Keith had been sitting in front of a computer scoring student responses, he seemed to believe that somehow he was being tested, not that the students were. Oh. That's Keith. Oh, dear. Um, oh, you know, he probably thought, like, what an amazing thing it was that he could get paid to take a test. <laughs> he, he, uh, apparently he did, yes. Ah, well, you know, I have to confess I'm I'm a recovering academic, Um, I went to graduate school and got a Ph.D. in literature, and I taught for six years at um, University of California, Berkeley, um, San Francisco State. Um, I've, you know, done guest lectures hither and yon. Um, So I'm I'm well aware of what it takes to teach and grade literature and composition essays from first, second, third, and fourth year students, (laughs) undergraduate students, and it's a very time-intensive um, task, you know, I mean, to really kind of engage with another person's writing. I often felt sometimes that I was expending more time sort of wrestling with and trying to um, think of questions that would further provoke deeper thought in the student's mind about what they were trying to say and the best way to say it than the student originally put into writing the paper. <laughs> and, you know, having been a student, I, I'm well aware of the sort of, you know, night before, um, you know, uh, caffeine or Red Bull-fueled, you know, burst of, of typing that occurs um, before an assignment is due. But um, my my overall point is that... Uh, it's it's really time intensive, and so that also must have been a bit of a burden, I would imagine, to the people who are assessing these essays um, for these testing companies. Because, as you mentioned, there's a very there's expected to be a very short turnaround time, and so that's why they're just sort of throwing like every warm body that they can get at this giant task. Because you know, California is 6.3 million students between the age of, you know, K through 12, and so you can just imagine, you know, the time it would take to grade all those. Um, right. But, uh, you know, nationally, we're talking about, you know, mind-boggling kind of scale. So uh, do you have any comments about that? Well, two comments. Um, one is that there wasn't the, – the thought you might have put in as a teacher is not at all like the thought we put in as essay readers because um, there were a level of expectations of how many essays you had to get through an hour. Mm-hmm. And the minimum of that was 20, which means you gave three minutes to each essay you looked at. More realistically, was you probably had to get through 25 or 30 an hour. So it was really – we spent like two minutes per essay. So if a student would write two or three pages, you were pounding through that in two minutes and writing down you know, the score of one, two, three, four, five, or six. 
and then never thinking of it, of it again as you went on to the next one. Um, I mean, that's the reality. Again, if you, I mean, the numbers you just dropped, 6.3 million students, if, if, if you only have to grade a million, a, mil, a million essays, I mean, how do people think that gets done? It gets done in, 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 a, in a virtual factory of just pounding, num- you know, pounding these essays out one after another, after another, after another. In- in- incredibly superficial reads. Um, and that's always been one of my concerns about this, that it, even if, that the job we always did, we did was so you know fleeting and superficial that I just don't think this it can offer anything of value. Um, and the other thing of interest in regarding scoring essays is that um, I think in the near future we're looking at um, automated scoring systems doing this job, which is you know powered by artificial intelligence. So mm-hmm. I know such such things exist right now. Um, and they say that um, they do as statistically good a job as humans do in assessing essays. Um, and then they also add the caveat that, you know, no automatic scoring systems can't read. So these systems have no idea what's written on the page, not a clue, but they can do a good, as good a job as the temporary employees currently doing the work. Um, you know, neither of those seem like good ideas to me. Now, uh, this, I, this is Megan, and I uh, I have a question. Sure. Now, what do you think, this might be something you cover in the book, but what do you think parents can be, I mean, obviously the system is very flawed, and what do you think parents can be doing in their communities, in their schools to change the system or to understand the system better so that they can maybe have a little bit more power over changing it? Well, I guess, you know, that's, this is one of the things that's always dumbfounded me is that um, there's never any discussion, not any discussion at all about the results that the industry returns. You know, we're just like the president, Arnie Duncan, they just say, let's have more tests. We'll see how the teachers are doing. And in the interim, I'm thinking, well, you know, why doesn't someone question what these for-profit tests, for-profit companies are returning to you? You know, there is a history of failure in the testing industry. Um, I, I wrote in the Huffington Post um, last week, I think. Um, let me look. We have um, there there were testing errors in in the last decade in Arizona, Washington, Virginia, Florida, South Carolina, Minnesota, Indiana, Illinois, Connecticut. There was a problem with uh, Praxis tests scored incorrectly. Problem in 2006 with the SAT scored incorrectly. Um, and and as I note. All of those are scoring errors by testing companies that were discovered when someone complained about the results they got back. So my point is that's like 10 or 12 or 15 incidents of massive mistakes by the testing industry, but there's no reason to believe that doesn't happen more often. You know, the testing testing industry isn't going to say, oh, we screwed up, sorry about that. You know, they're going to admit their mistakes when they're discovered, and that's it. So given my, my point... If the last 10 years they screw up that regularly, why are we going to trust them so much? Secondly, we know that all kind of, we know that testing data can be manipulated completely. You know, here in New York City, there was three or four years they were t- they were you know touting these massive test improvements, you know, these test score improvements. And then last year or so, we figured out, oh, wait, wait, they aren't really improvements. We just made the cut score lower. You know, <laughs> or, or, or we find out now that in Washington. And in, last year, in both Atlanta and Detroit, there were cheating scandals, you know, someone changing student answers from wrong to right. And it seems like that same thing has happened in Washington, D.C. right now. Yes, I was just about to ask you about that because it reflects really poorly on Michelle Rhee, 
who right. was sort of touted in the media as sort of a, you know, wunderkind, you know, right. magical Pied Piper who somehow had the key to turning around schools that were labeled as failing and really getting, you know, boosting um, student test scores where the test scores had been really low previously. She boasted of, like, these enormous gains. And she also awarded, you know, bonuses to the schools, the exact same schools, which are now sort of accused of, of some sort of impropriety in, in right. these erasures. And, in fact, I think one wag dubbed the whole thing erase to the top. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, yeah, and um, it, it just it just seems like it's uh, a, an enormous problem. I, I thought your Huffington Post um, piece on that, I think it was maybe just a couple days ago, yeah. that um, really exhaustively kind of outlined um, all of those incidents that you mentioned and gave details, gave, you know, the, the, the cities and the school districts um, names and, you know, sort of called out all those areas where, standardized testing fallibility was really, you know, highlighted, if not cheating on the part of administrators and or teachers. Right. Um, I'm sorry. What was interesting about uh-huh. that is the, the day after my Huffington Post piece came out, there was a story in the New York Times about how 1,700 kids in the city of New York got the wrong score back on a, on an admission standardized test for city schools. And this was by, you know, the something called someplace called ERB, which I've never heard of, and it was scored by Measurement Incorporated, which I've never heard of. But my point is, you know, it's one it's one big snafu after another in terms of standardized tests. So I just don't know why people are just blindly um, thinking this is the answer. Other than, like I, I to, not to be cynical, but I don't know how you could do this other than the fact that you you're more interested in making money than you are in education. Um, but to, to answer Megan's earlier question, um, I swear the first, and this, this doesn't say a great thing about me, but the first day I scored standardized tests, and that was like 1995, um, I was like, wow, this is crazy. You know, I was like, this isn't, this isn't standardized, this is foolish, this is silly. But I kept working because I, I enjoyed the travel and the money and all, et cetera, et cetera. But, but I should say, when I was doing this, um, this is sort of, before it became so important. And so the fact it's become this important now, is it, it staggers me. But from the first, um, let me just tell you a quick anecdote. The first day I scored the test, um, it was like third or fourth grade students, and they read a passage about bicycle safety. Um, and then they were supposed to draw a poster that showed an example of bicycle safety. And if they drew a, a poster that had a good rule, they got a point. And if they drew a poster that didn't have a good rule, they didn't get a point. So virtually the first poster I scored, it showed um, a little bike rider flying his bike up in the air over a canal filled with flaming oil. Um, his, two, his, two hands, his two hands are waving in the air, but on, but on his head he, he had a bike helmet. So, and it, it didn't say anything, you know. So that there's this. I'm looking at this poster, and I'm saying, like, wow, wow this poor little guy. You know, he's gonna he's gonna crash and burn here, you know. Um, but and so I think I tried to give it no no points, and then my supervisor, the person next to me, said, "Oh, you have to give that points." So, you know, that that person clearly understands bicycle safety. I was like, "There's seven ways this kid is gonna hurt himself with a hat." So anyway, so as of that day, I was like, "This is this is ridiculous." Um, and I've thought it ever since, and, I, and I'm, I'm astounded that we're, we're at the point now where um, it's become so important. But on top of all that, even though I've always thought it was foolish, I now have a 17-month-old son, 
And uh, I can't emphasize enough. My my son's little head is never going to be worried about a standardized test. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm not I'm not going to allow Pearson Education or Harcourt, you know, whatever or ETS K12, all these for-profit companies to you know to squeeze money out of him. It's just not going to happen. And so I think the it, I, the only thing I can see happening to make this stop because these these companies aren't going to give the money back. They're not going to say, oh, this is a bad idea. Is for people to to boycott to say. You know, not anymore, not my child. And that's, uh, well, <laughs> that's where I am. You know, go ahead, Megan, and then I wanted to jump in afterwards. Go ahead. Yeah, How about that? You're kind of, oh, Carolyn, did you have a question? Oh, sorry. Well, I, I did, Just or, or or just a comment. You have a 17-month-old son. I have a 17-year-old daughter who, I'm, who stresses every day and year over these tests. Right. And... And now I just signed her up. I, you know, I just signed her up for the ACT and SAT. She's second in her class. She's smart, you know, right. and she stresses. She just goes nuts over these tests. Right. But, and and it, it drives me crazy too, especially when I hear that these statistics, like eighty-two percent of um, schools in the nation are not meeting the standard. Well, that tells me there's something wrong with the standard. I mean, am I crazy here? Or is there something wrong with the standard and not the kids taking the test? I mean, it seems to me that it's, it, that the easy name is to blame the kids who take the test or blame the schools who teach the kids who take the test. But nobody ever asks about the test itself, and there's something not right about that. I think the I think the 82% you're talking about maybe what is that what Arnie Duncan mentioned recently? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. that 82% is they're saying that the schools aren't meeting adequate yearly progress, and that is because everyone agrees it's it's literally impossible math- mathematically for everyone in every subgroup to grow, you know, to improve forever. So there's there's certainly no question that, that they've made that standard up. You know, like I said, you can you can play with statistics all you want, and uh, I think they're just probably trying to use those numbers to move towards the education reform they seem to want. Right, but at the core of those numbers is a test. Right? I mean, they, they test the kids, they grade the test, and then those tests have to show some weird ephemeral progress thing right. that that they then factor in and, you know, figure out what it is and all that. And it's it's not working if 82% of schools aren't meeting it. I mean, something's wrong somewhere, and I don't think it's the schools or the kids or the teachers. Well, I think in addition, um, the, the problem is also that people, you know, all the schools were supposed to meet adequate yearly progress by 2014. So, you know, it's like we've we've kind of set the goalposts in complete um, isolation from any sort of reality about you know, what these tests mean, what they diagnose, what they tell us about what students are learning, and then also what it is that students are actually scoring on these tests, right? And and I think that's what's so appalling also is that now we're trying to link teacher performance to standardized tests, which, first of all, it's it's rather dubious, like, what it is that these tests show us. I don't think that they're, all tests are evil, and I think that some tests are better designed than others, and I think best of all is that to say that they are diagnostic and, you know, we cannot abolish all testing 
period, because we do sort of need a, a way to conform and understand, you know, data that we collect from state to state and, you know, get sort of a something of a picture, but it's it's not going to be sort of a end-all and be-all sort of hard number that, you know, I think learning is very, learning learning is basically, learning and teaching is an artisanal craft. <laughs> it's a very individualized, subjective process, and, and I think what's, what it's coming up against is this need to sort of mechanize and um and and quantify and datafy you know um across across the country you know to to be able to process quote unquote a lot of a lot of children and try to make a statement about what is being learned so i think that the two things are kind of clashing in a really fundamental way and i think no child left behind is policy that unfortunately places too much emphasis too much faith <laughs> in what it is that tests tell us with not enough sort of critical assessment of the assessment itself. Right. Um, yeah, and and so so I just wanted to comment really quickly. There was a great piece that came out in the American Prospect by one of my favorite education press, uh, education journalists, um, Dana Goldstein. She actually went to Colorado. It's called The Test Generation. Uh, it came out April 11th in AmericanProspect.org, or Prospect.org, rather, and she talks about um, time that she spent in a first-grade art classroom where six-year-olds were learning about Picasso's Weeping Woman, <laughs> you know, this, like, 1937 Cubist painting. And so they're basically getting art history, and then later they're going to be tested on that, you know, in a multiple-choice format. And it just struck me as, like, sort of a key example of the mania for testing just having gone off the edge, off the edge of the cliff. Because if you're in first grade, shouldn't you be learning how to make art? I mean, it seems like an art class would be an ideal opportunity to let the students just hands-on, you know, experiment. Sure, tell them a little bit about art history. Tell them a little bit about different styles of, you know, and, and key painters or whatever. But, I mean, we're going to standardize test what these children know about art history or, you know, what are the right colors that show what emotions. I mean, it's just it's kind of outrageous to me that Arnie Duncan and the Department of Education would want to expand into areas that really seem to me to be very poorly quantifiable. <laughs> you know, there's nothing objective there, you know. I mean, there's there's subjective evaluation, which can be very thoughtful and, and you know, with a, with a critical bent, but um, I kind of would like my first grader to just be making art, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, in an art class. So um, I think there's a real clash there in terms of what it is we think we're measuring and what it is we're going to use that measurement for. And if the students in that first grade art class uh, have poor results, then that first grade art teacher, is her job going to be on the line? I mean, that seems to me to be the very definition of insanity. <laughs> you oh. know? <clears throat> so, totally. Megan, you, you had had a comment or a question, rather? Yeah, yeah I I had a question. Kind of kind of taking everything that we've talked about, it, like I was saying earlier, it proves that the system does not work, in, in its current form, at least, you know. So... And my, for instance, my son is in second grade. Their testing begins next week. And I, what if, do I have the option as a parent? I mean, can I say, you know what, I, I'm not going to let my son take this test. 
I don't want him to take that test. Is that is that something that parents can just randomly do, and would it have any kind of effect? And kind of like you were saying, you're not you're going to make sure your 17 month old never, when he gets into school, never has to worry about testing to the degree that so many kids do. Is that a good way to kind of sidestep that stress for our child, especially at the elementary level? You know. Well, two, two things that uh, I think about it. One, in in regard to what Cynthia said about um, the art class, is that again the testing companies are never going to say let's stop this. They're going to get away with as much as they can. They're going to make as much as they can. It seems to me the to me the only way you can stop it is if when when parents certainly and to some degree teachers start to say no and boycott. Um, and the, and the thing about opting out, um, I, I've been there was a woman named Michelle Gray who was on CNN recently um who I'm I'm in touch with on Facebook who opted her kids out of the Pen- the Pennsylvania tests and so you know the CNN clip showed her son sitting to the side of the class you know playing with Legos I think and all his all his classmates sitting there taking their Pennsylvania state tests um now you know what you think about that uh I don't know what if, if people think that's good or bad but the thing is her her children were really stressing out about this um and she doesn't see the value in them so they're mm-hmm. opting out um there are people there there on facebook um there are people there are all these various sites that talk about different ways to opt out and it's different in every state i'm pretty sure in mm-hmm. california you can opt out um you pro- and probably you know the schools need a certain number of kids to take the test but you know that shouldn't be your worry as a parent, you know. Your, yeah. I would think my worry as a parent is to do what's best for my child, not to make sure that um, a school has enough kids take their tests or the administration gets what it get get what get <laughs> gets what it wants. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, opting out is uh, it's different in every state, but it's happening around the country quite a bit, and I think it's probably going to happen more and more as we start to you know abuse our kids in this way continually. Mm-hmm. I would like to add that um, I could see something very nefarious happening, and I don't know what the particulars are, but I know that school funding in California, and I think just pretty much just about everywhere, is based on average daily attendance. So there's like a certain dollar amount that schools get when children show up, and you know their bottom is in the seat <laughs> at attendance mm-hmm. time. So, um, so for that reason, it can be very. Um, it can have financial impact if you um, take your kid out of school for, you know, however, a few days or whatever on some sort of family, whatever. Um, there are provisions where if you make arrangements in advance and get the homework, et cetera, then it can, you know, it doesn't affect the funding. But I could see something very nefarious where um, suddenly schools that do not have sufficient numbers of students taking these standardized exams state standardized exams, that they might lose funding, you know, based on that. I think that, you know, we'd have to be very leery of, you know, <clears throat> opting out, but if there's if somewhere down the line, and I wouldn't put it past, <laughs> you know, um, testing company lobbyists to kind of push for this, but to, you know, to couple together the attendance with the test taking as an effort to try to get, you know, all of the students to comply, you know, I, I think that 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 could be very tricky, but I think currently it might not work that way. I mean, your kid is actually attending school, and so therefore the school would get funded, but, you know, they're just not taking the test. So I think it, it kind of rides the line in terms of, you know, civil dis- disobedience and um, mm-hmm. and certainly, you know, sending a big message to um, your local school 
but I, I I would be wary about any attempts to link, you know, test taking with attendance funding. I guess is the best way to put it. <clears throat> I know for our school, it's um, this is not on the books by any means, but it's known, you know, within our school that we have the 9 a.m. rule because if your child is in school until 9 a.m the funding gets received. Mm -hmm, So they mm -hmm. ask that you make all doctor's appointments. If you're going to take your child out early for vacation, you wait until after 9. And, I mean, it would be easy, at least where I am, I know it would be easy to work around that, you know, or just keep your child in school and have them sit and play Legos like you had mentioned. (laughs) Right, right. My son wouldn't complain. (laughs) (laughs) I would also like to add, um, no Child Left Behind is supposedly at this very moment, you know, being revised by various legislators and, and um, you know, there's sort of bipartisan efforts to tweak, you know, parts of it and things like that. And actually what I'm doing at K-12 News Network is I'm in the process of putting up all ten titles of No Child Left Behind up on the web. I mean, they're already up on the web. You can go to ed.gov and, you know, read and download any part of it that you want. So it's already public. But what I'm doing is I'm putting it up online in a way so that you can go to the specific title that you're interested in. For example, you know, the section on STEM education, if that's a particular interest of yours. And then you can go to that section and then you can comment paragraph by paragraph. Now, a lot of the times, and I'll also be providing, I'm in the process of writing up um, uh, sort of a guide, like, okay, if your particular interest is, you know, um, troops to teachers. There was a provision in, in, I forget what section of No Child Left Behind, that um, allows for veterans to seg into positions as teachers using, you know, they obviously have to be credentialed, et cetera, but to, to provide a path for that. So if that was your particular interest, then, you know, you, I can guide you to that one section and give you some resources on the kind of debate that's been going on around that. And so what my hope is, to really get people to dig into the law and um, kind of give people a voice so that they can go back to their rep- representatives and say, you know what, um, this part really has to change. <laughs> you know, this part on testing, this part on whatever it is, like that really has not been working for us. That needs to change. And I think that hopefully giving people a tool like this will create a community of people that are interested in, you know, digging into the chunks that matter the most to them, figuring it out, you know, in a group, sort of crowdsourcing the knowledge, and then also hopefully taking that back to your elected representative and and making some noise, you know, Um, because I think that's the only way that uh, we're going to be able to, you know, direct our legislators to the parts that we don't like and the parts that, you know, need improvement. Um, you know, there's also, like, really great stuff in No Child Left Behind, um, but, you know, there are definitely parts that need improving. So that's something that, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll be launching in the next week or so, and, um, you know, I encourage everyone to take a look at that on K-12 News Network. It's something that I feel like is is the kind of news that we don't get in sort of corporate media coverage, but, you know, is the kind of news that impacts parents and and kids in schools very much so, and also very much so educators, um, teachers, uh, and anyone who would would have to kind of prove their, you know, job security is resting on that kind of standardized test uh, score. So I think this is an opportunity to really, you know, try to turn it around. Um, But Todd, um, so 
I guess it, we are coming down to like the last few minutes of our show, and um, I wanted to thank you for for being our guest today. And if you wanted to know if you had any really quick comments before we plugged our sponsor one last time, and then also heard about a project that your wife is working on, did you have any final comments about the book? Um, I guess the the final comment I have is just the point I've been trying to make. I've written a bunch of op-eds, and I've written this book, and that is that people have an, a complete blind faith in the testing industry. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that the testing industry has ever done anything that um, you know makes that faith reasonable. And so my hope is that people just read my book and think to themselves, hmm, what, what really is happening to my child's test when it gets taken away? You know, who's writing this? Who's scoring this? Are these results the real deal? So I would just hope people uh, uh, have, a, have a read of my book and then, um, you know, ask yourself, are these people I want making decisions about my my child and my my child's teachers? Right, and it's it's published by PolyPoint Press, and right. um, is it available in hardcover as well as paper? It is uh, no, it's uh, two hundred and twenty odd pages, but it's only in paperback. Okay. Um, so, and it is a uh, you know Jonathan Kozel called it dynamite. Um, it's it's a memoir, so it's sort of a short, punchy read that I think has some some important truths in it. But uh, it's not, you know, there's no research involved. It's it's hopefully a good read um, that tells an important story. So I hope people have a read. Yes, and um, is it available on Kindle and other kinds of e-readers? You know, I don't think it is. Um, I think okay. it, I think it was. Uh, it's been out for more than a year now. Um, and I'm not sure if it's. it's it might. It's, it was in Borders and Barnes and Noble, but certainly you can get it now at um, those places online or at Amazon.com. Um, and uh, I think it's only eleven dollars and a punchy read. So enjoy. Okay. Yeah. So that's um, the author we've been talking with today is Todd Farley, F A R L E Y, and I'll put up the information on the Facebook. Uh, page for Mamacrats. I think some of it is up there already, but I'll you know put it up there again, as well as some of the articles that we've been discussing on um, standardized testing and um, its place in Big Ed. And um, it's the book is Making the Grades, and it is on PolyPoint Press, available in your local bookstore, paperback. Um, a fun, a fun kind of take on something that um, is nevertheless you know serious and affects all of our kids um, that have to, you know, go through the school system. And um, also insightful, you know, insightful on um, on something that is a big linchpin of education policy as it currently exists. And so, you know, there's a serious um, piece at the heart of it as well. Uh, so I wanted to really quickly thank, uh, again, our sponsors, BubbleGenius.com. And um, they are two women in L.A. who make amazing vegan soaps, um, of all shapes and sizes. I think they're starting to put together their Mother's Day um, baskets, and um, they've got all kinds of fun soaps. On on Pie Day, which was March 14th, of course, they had pie-shaped soaps in that it looked like the mathematical symbol for pie. So, And key lime pie, you know, banana cream pie, all those fun things. So they're really wonderful um, supporters of ours, and we hope that you support them in return. Um, finally, Todd, your wife is a playwright, and she has a, a play that that had, has, is just concluding um, a New York run. Is that right? Can you tell us more it, about it? It is, sure. My wife uh, actually uh, interviewed a number of veterans of the U.S. military, oh. um, and and they they shared their experiences with, uh, unfortunately, military sexual trauma. 
Um, military sexual trauma is something that happens to more than, I think, seven or 8,000 people last year, the fiscal year 2010, in the U.S. military. And they say that that's only 20% of reported cases, so there's apparently many more thousands of cases if this occurs. But my, ro- my, excuse me, my wife wrote a documentary play about this. So, um, you know, taking these stories from these service people and um, melding it together into a play. Uh, it's called A Shot Away, and it's being played at the Red Fern Theater. This is the last week. It's been selling out lately, but it's a very important story. And uh, perhaps very importantly, it's not, although it's a serious topic, it's a, it's sort of a, at times funny and uplifting story. It's it's tragic at times, it's sad at times, but it's a very uh, it's a very important play for anyone who is in New York and might want to see it. Again, it's called A Shot Away, and it's at the Red Fern Theater. Great, and it sounds like it's also going um, on a on a national run in, in some smaller venues later on. Well, my my wife uh, it was is sharing the the script with anyone who wants it, so it's being performed. I think in twelve cities across the country. Sort of, you know, people are putting it on themselves, not 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 big productions, but um, so that the message gets out there. Great, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for being our guest today, Todd. Thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks, Carolee. Thanks, Megan. Bye. Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.